All right, good morning, everyone. We're having way too much fun here. All right, well, we are in 2 Kings uh, chapter 19. And a special thanks to Vicar for his wonderful teaching. Uh, last week, we'll be sure to have him back again. Before we begin our study formally, let's uh, have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, what we are going to see is that Hezekiah, of course, is, as we are a sinful human being in need of the mercy of the true Messiah, the true King himself. And we're going to see that in kind of a, I think kind of an astonishing way, um, but a way that certainly rings true of our own times. So without further ado, we left off maybe having finished verse 34 or so. For the sake of it, let's back up to 32. Uh, verse 32, chapter 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it, which is an astonishing promise that no violence whatsoever will be done to the city by Assyria. You know, this, this would probably be parallel to something like, you know, America deciding we're going to go destroy this little village somewhere in the Middle East and God being like, no, <laughs> no, not a single bullet, not a single tomahawk missile, nothing. Uh, this is an astonishing and unthinkable promise that the Lord gives here, but because he is the Lord, he does indeed see it through. So, verse 33, by the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now, here again, we, when we see this language in the scriptures, we've seen it repeatedly in First and Second Kings, um, where we see this language, we don't want to think to ourselves, well, God is just fulfilling a personal favor to David. No, what is the promise made to David? Remember and recall how David wanted to build a house for the Lord, and the Lord said, no, rather, I will build and establish a household for you, give you a son and heir who will rule and reign in your stead forever. So this is the promise of the Messiah. So where we run across this language in Kings and elsewhere in Scripture, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David, it is the messianic promise. God still has in mind his gracious purposes towards his people and towards the whole world. And thus, he will uh, protect the city in this instance. All right, verse 35 and into the new material. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down, the 100, and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. We will, uh, we will comment more on this in a moment, but 
Again, as a general rule, you can't really go wrong. Unless the context states otherwise, the angel of the Lord is typically the second person of the Holy Trinity. So, um, allow yourself the mental exercise of picturing this as Jesus. Even if it isn't Jesus, it's done at the behest of Jesus, uh, an angel underneath him uh, executing this attack. It will change, I think it will change your, you know, we, there's, there's two different errors we can fall into. And we, I as a pastor run into people who are always falling into one side or the other. And, and on the one side, and maybe most prevalent, is this idea that Jesus is kind of like a guy in, a, in Birkenstock sandals and a long flowing robe. He's got a pair of sunglasses on. He smells vaguely of hemp. And uh, he would never lift a hand to harm. He's like harmless. He's the harmless hippie Jesus. Uh, okay, use a text like this to cleanse yourself of that. Okay. Um, now, now a, a, kind of, a kind of opposite error is to see the God of the Old Testament as bloodthirsty and violent and uh, gratuitously so. Not so. Not so. That's a very simplistic reading of the scriptures. As you dig into the scriptures themselves, as you understand the historical context of God's actions, you can see how he is punishing the unrighteous and how he is, um, again, executing a temporal strategy and temporal justice for the sake of bring, bringing the Messiah into the world, for the sake of the salvation of the world, ultimately. This Messiah who comes, while he does indeed come um, to establish peace through his own self-sacrifice, there is perfect continuity between the God of the Old Testament and uh, Christ embodied in flesh and what we read of, of Christ in the Revelation in Revelation at the end of the Bible where we've got him returning to execute justice and righteousness and wage final warfare against the enemies of God's people. So all of these things are, are part of the one true God in whom there is no variation or change. And so we want to just absorb all of this in. Now, if you drop down to the study note, it's not, it's not necessary that we see the angel of the Lord here as the second person of the Trinity. And in fact, the study note in Luther's reading seems to kind of distance, uh, create a little distance from that reading. So, um, study note on verse 35, the angel of the Lord. At the time of the Exodus, the Lord sent the destroyer into every Egyptian home to smite its firstborn. Now, to me, this is a little bit of a tenuous comparison because I'm not exactly sure that the destroyer is ever called the angel of the Lord. I would have to go digging through to, to see if that is ever done, but I'm skeptical of that. The angel of the Lord executed judgment at David's time by means of a pestilence. That's true and undisputed. It is possible that he slew the Assyrian army by employing the same means. Okay, so here is a little bit of conjecture in regard to verse 35. How is it in this instance that the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000? The means here isn't specified. The conjecture is that pos possibly by way of pestilence or plague. We don't know. 
We aren't given enough information. Now, what does Luther say about this? It is well known that at the time of King Hezekiah, the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians in a single night and by a single assault. And Christ praises the might of the angels when he tells Peter about the 12 legions, although a single angel would have been enough to turn back and destroy the enemies of Christ. Uh, just place a finger there. Important caveat, too, because you recall our Lord's words to Pilate um, and Pilate's words to our Lord, are you a king? You know, if I was a king, if my kingdom was of this world, uh, then my followers would have fought. And that would include the angels of heaven, the army of heaven. I mean, think of the army of heaven alone would be sufficient to not only free Jesus, but crush the Romans and create a kingdom on earth. And so here we see, too, how our Lord voluntarily goes to the cross for the salvation of the world. Continuing with Luther, Indeed, the story of Job proves that even the wicked angels are endowed with great power. It is profitable to know these facts. They serve to comfort the godly, but to frighten the ungodly. For we who believe must be certain that the princes of heaven are with us, not one or two, but a great multitude of them, as is recorded in Luke, that the heavenly hosts were with the shepherds. All right, so Luther seems to sort of just talk about the power of angels, and the inference here is then he would view this as an angel, a created being, as opposed to the uncreated angel of the Lord, the second person of the, of the Holy Trinity. So, do with that what you will. I'm not here to bind your conscience one way or another. Latter half of verse 35 and when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adremelech and Sherezar, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, so for the pomp and the arrogance, and again, just ostensibly speaking, the power, the earthly power of the king of Assyria, it is as nothing to God, and he fulfills his word. He stops the Assyrians from firing a single arrow or building a single ramp, siege ramp, against the city. Um, they are struck down. God is the true God. And in fact, then, we have this comparison that, uh, you know, the king of Assyria goes back and worships his God, and in that very moment is, is left completely unprotected and is killed by his own sons. All right, well, that's the end of a, a rather lengthy narrative um, here recorded in 2 Kings. We've got a few of these, and this is one of the lengthier, more substantive uh, of these narratives. And then we start moving a little bit more quickly. Um, we'll get through this, this other side of the coin, the personal uh, need that 
Hezekiah has that the Lord fulfills. And then we start moving kind of quickly again through various kings of Judah as we approach the inevitable, which is going to be the uh, Yeah, it's going to be the, the Babylonian captivity. All right, let's pause there, see if you have any thoughts or anything, um, any questions or anything like that hanging around from uh, chapter 19 or this previous narrative. Um, yes, are we running a microphone today? We have a hand up here in the front, um, our, our vicar, so I want to make sure and get his comments. <laughs> So it's uh, one of the things I've learned in, in my studies is that we have actually obtained the annals of King Sennacherib. Uh, this is an archaeological find, and uh, these were inscribed on prisms that you can find in various places, like the British Museum, for example. And one of the things that Sennacherib says in his annals is that uh, he's, he, he references King Hezekiah and he says, As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. But he doesn't mention anything about taking the city of Jerusalem. <laughs> <laughs> nice omission there. Right. Yeah, he's capitalizing on his success, which is, hey, he was shut up in there. Fails to mention that something strange happened and he happened to lose almost 200,000 men and go back with his tail tucked between his legs, yeah. Yeah, interesting, interesting omission, yeah. yeah I like that. <laughs> he could put that on his resume, caged Hezekiah, yeah, yeah. Oh well, thanks for that, thanks for that, that's nice to know. I'm sure that that's kind of a, an interesting read to say the least. Um, please. Um, I have thought often of Christ in the temple, overturning the tables and calling people names, mm -hmm. <laughs> white sepulchers and uh, vipers and snakes, mm -hmm. and that's also Christ. And it raised quite an uproar, and I've seen it from a different perspective recently, like, people would be indignant, wow, how can he say those things and all that, you know? Yes, yes. I have, though, in the past thought, Okay, not to take away from what he said, mm -hmm. but he was a perfect man. Mm -hmm. Are we allowed to speak and do things like that? As, as Christ did? Yeah. Absolutely. I think we're encouraged to. You know? To be part of being conformed into the image of Christ is to have um, righteous anger and have that righteous anger directed at the things that anger God. Yeah, yeah. and I think... Um, there too, what we run up against, and this is really maybe a nice way of summarizing kind of the point and the emphasis that I was touching on here and try to frequently touch on in my ministry. In American Christianity, the chief virtue is niceness. And everything is judged by, you know, is that person nice? Is the pastor nice? And of course, what we see if we're just even take a cursory glance at the New Testament is that Jesus would fail the test of being nice. He calls people names, you brood of vipers. He speaks directly and forcefully. He's offensive. I think in his, his first sermon, he uh, immediately after he preaches it and everybody loves him, he immediately offends them by pointing out that uh, 
God gave mercy to uh, two, two pagans and has come for the, for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And so the, point, the rhetorical point that they take offense of is that, the, is that the Jews are not the only ones and shouldn't keep themselves up on this pedestal. Uh, God wants to have mercy on them just as he has mercy on, on the pagans. They take great offense and nearly throw him off a cliff. So you can always, you can, you can always take, uh, take comfort in that, Vicar, that as you go and preach your first sermon at your first <laughs> pair someday, if they want to throw you off the cliff, then you're only following in our Lord's footsteps. No. Um, yeah, you know, Jesus fails the test of, of being nice. He's, uh, we went through that a little in our previous class, some examples of that with uh, how the gospel is always surprising. That is, it's counterintuitive and our Lord doesn't act the way we would expect him to act. The, the healing of the man and Jesus finds this peculiar way to heal him. The pleading of the woman with the daughter possessed by a demon and Jesus rebuffs her and even calls her a dog. And so there's, you know, there's strange, Jesus is strange and unpredictable and counterintuitive. He's wonderful and good. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it in terms to, of uh, Aslan, the lion in Chronicles of Narnia uh, being the Christ figure. He's not a tame lion, you know. He's not a, he's not a tame God. Uh, he's not a tame Christ. He's very good. But he's not tame. And uh, that's, that's so wonderful. And that's what, I think that's what we see when we integrate all the scriptures from the Old Testament through Revelation um, and what we have in the New Testament of Christ enfleshed in his earthly ministry with us. Um, we see that he is, he's very good, but he's not tame. And in fact, he's got his own definition of good, and it does not accord with our definition of niceness or our chief virtue of Christianity here in America. So thank you for those, those comments. They're, they're helpful for us to consider. Okay, seeing nothing else, let's go a little further. Hezekiah chapter 20, verse 1, or excuse me, Hezekiah, Kings. Second Kings, we're on to Hezekiah. Chapter 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. We'll find out later that he's suffering from a boil, which seems to be some kind of infection had taken over his body, some kind of boil and wound and infection. Uh, of course, they don't have antibiotics back then. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. All right, that's about as definitive as you get. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, Please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And immediately the Lord chastised him for his self-righteousness. No, but isn't that stunning? Isn't that stunning that the Lord doesn't chastise him for his self-righteousness? Very, very interesting point. This language of walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart, done what is good in your sight, this comes from the covenantal language of the Old Testament um, of the Mosaic Covenant. Drop down to your study note in verse 3. Wrestling with the Lord in prayer as Jacob did. Hezekiah holds the Lord to the oft-repeated covenant promise that those will, quote, live long who, quote, walk in the ways of the Lord 
as he commanded, reference to Deuteronomy 5. So did Hezekiah here think that he had, um, you know, strictly speaking, merited or earned this favor of God? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Did he think that he was somehow morally perfect or not in need of atonement, not in need of a Messiah? No, I don't think that either. Clearly not. I don't think so. But what he does do is he does say, I think, something quite equivalent to this. Lord, I followed your precepts and your word, and I'm asking if you would bless and benefit me in accordance with your word. There's nothing self-righteous about that. And I think that this is a really important verse for us to consider deeply and ponder and take into our own minds and our own theology because as Lutherans, we sometimes have a tendency to get a little too narrow with our categories and a little too law and gospel to the point where we could never pray this prayer. And yet, Hezekiah does. And the Lord doesn't rebuke him. Rather, the Lord hears him. And so that's the next, that's what happens next, verse 4. And before Isaiah had gone out of the midst of the court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. Okay, well, that's strange. But apparently, according to the study note, that latter point is the easy point. Um, and that is that this was medicinal, uh, was used, and I think the study note even says it continues to be used. Let me double check that. Still used, yes, still used for medical purposes in the Near East. So in regards to the boil, serious infection during an era lacking antibiotics, apparently they used figs for the cleansing of this. Don't ask me how that works, the chemistry or medical properties of figs in, in relation to infected boils. I have no idea. But apparently this was the use of medicine. I actually think we have an interesting sub-point here, um, or tangential point, and that is that even though the Lord has promised to deliver him and spare his life, he still uses medicine. He still engages in the treatment. And I, I find that at least um, worth keeping in mind that even if the Lord were to say to you, um, I will heal you, don't worry, uh, that doesn't mean you say, okay, great, never going to a doctor again, never going to use the, God, God honors uh, medicine and means, and um, in our case, it would be doctors and treatments and that kind of thing. God honors and uses that and works through means. And so we don't want to eschew those things, even if we had a promise from God that we will, in fact, uh, revive. And so I think here you have, you have kind of an interesting treatment of that question. This whole section, in fact, is filled with these kinds of intriguing little ideas where there's a little more here than maybe immediately meets the eye. I pointed out, of course, this prayer and the way that Hezekiah prays, that our, our theology had better allow us to make this kind of prayer or else our theology's gone askew. 
And then what other details can we point out? Well, it is interesting that he turns his face when he prays. There is a Syriac church father. He's not well known. In fact, I've maybe only run across anything he's had to say on a handful of times. Uh, Aphrahad is his name. He's fourth century. If you look at um, your note on chapter 20, verse 5, you've got this statement where he kind of sees some meaning in Hezekiah turning toward the wall. Hezekiah prayed and was healed of his sickness. Yeah, look, he's making a comparison to the Lord. He's seeing Hezekiah as a type of Jesus. So Hezekiah, who's laid up in bed, prayed and is healed. He rises from his sickbed, which was to be his deathbed. Jesus prays, pr prayed and arose from the abode of the dead. So Jesus' prayer that God would deliver him, that God would let this cup pass, is answered in the resurrection of Jesus. The cup does indeed pass. He is heard because of his, oh, how does, how does Hebrews put it? Because of his reverence. Because of his reverence. So Jesus' prayer is answered in his resurrection. All right, the, com the comparison continues here. So Hezekiah, after he rose from his sickness, added to his years, and Jesus, after his resurrection, received great glory. Hezekiah, after the prolongation of his life, death was given dominion over him. But Jesus, after he rose, death shall not again have dominion over him forever. So in this contrast, um, we, are, we are shown that... Uh, how the church fathers would read this text, that Hezekiah is a type of Christ, and Christ is an even greater Hezekiah, surpassing all of these things. But that wasn't the comment I wanted. Where's this business about the wall? Oh, it's... Yeah, 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 it's, sorry, it's one, no it's a couple notes up. This is Cyril of Jerusalem. And he makes this note specific to the wall. Um, this is in the note on... Uh, verse 3, but on page 617. Uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, take heed lest without reason you mistrust the power of repentance. Hezekiah did not desist from repentance, but remembering what is written, when you shall turn and lament, then you shall be saved. He turned to the wall. So that's Cyril of Jerusalem's take. I'm trying to look for a pen so I can correct my note there. That's um, St. Cyril of Jerusalem's take on the action of Hezekiah turning toward the wall, a physical manifestation of turning in repentance. All right, well, some other things we can kind of ponder and fetch out from this section. Um, Minor detail, but important nonetheless. So the word of the Lord comes uh, to Isaiah, who then returns to speak to Hezekiah. Um, can the Lord change his mind? Can the Lord change his mind? According to this text, quite evidently, yes. Now, we want to do two different things. We want to be able to confess that God outside of time and space knows all things and never changes. He's utterly and entirely transcendent. Great. And the scriptures tell us that. Great. But because he's completely outside of time and space, he is incomprehensible to us. So that's kind of the end of that 
that doctrine, if you will. The scriptures tell us it's true. We believe it's true. We can comprehend almost none of it. But then the flip side of this transcendence is God's imminence. That is how he interacts with us in space and time. And how he interacts with us in space and time is he wants us to to look at him as a father and to pray to him as we would to a father. And that includes prayers that God would change his mind. And he seems to, in many instances in the scriptures, very clearly change his mind. Okay, Um, You can think of uh, even in Nineveh with Jonah, um, God repented and spared Jonah. He changed his heart and mind toward Nineveh, whom he was going to punish, and spares them and has mercy on them. God here in no uncertain terms saying to Hezekiah, said, your house in order for you shall die, you shall not recover. Hezekiah repenting and praying uh, and God changing his mind. Our Lord Jesus Christ praying in the garden and Paul praying in the garden that the the thorn in his flesh would be removed, praying to God dynamically as our Father, um, who may indeed change his mind. So we hold these two things together, even though they seem quite contradictory and irreconcilable in our mind. Here we know we have it right then. We have the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to the human mind. And that is that God is both transcendent and unchanging and imminent and changing. Key to this in terms of our prayers is how our Lord teaches us to pray. We don't pray, Lord God, transcendent one who knows everything I'm going to say before I say it, therefore, amen. (laughs) But the Lord teaches us to pray, rather, our Father who art in heaven. And we pray that God would hear our prayer and answer our prayer, which is very specific to our own needs. And so even then, we're asking God to do something for us. Um, to change in some technical sense, at least, and to, for example, let his name be hallowed among us, let his kingdom come among us, let his will be done crushing and hindering the will of the, the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature. And so when our Lord himself teaches us to pray, we're to view God as imminent, that is, God as personal, our, our true, dear, heavenly Father, and one who um, is changeable and adaptable to our needs and to our petitions. Here we have a perfect biblical example of that taking place. Okay, what else might we extrapolate here? Um, A minor point, a minor point, but um, the Lord come, the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah, turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, the Lord still views himself as king and the one who possesses his people. This Hezekiah as king is an under king. It very much parallel to where wherever the Lord talks about the ministry, the office of the holy ministry, in uh, the New Testament, he refers to the people as his people, his sheep. And the shepherd, the pastor, is only an under-shepherd. So, for example, John 21, the Lord is talking with Peter, and he says, feed my sheep. Yeah, tend to my flock. Um, Likewise, in uh, Acts, where Paul is talking to the elders, to the first century pastors, um, it is the flock of God, the church is the flock of God, whom he has purchased with his own blood and then the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd over this flock that belongs to God. So 
everywhere where the office of the holy ministry is mentioned it is God's flock, God's people. Here the parallel is even though there is an earthly king, God is the true king. They are his people. Hezekiah is merely an under king. And so you have this uh, stated explicitly here. Um, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people. There is a connection here between the prayer and tears. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. And certainly many church fathers have made a connection between tears and healing. Our tears have value in the sight of God. And then as I, as I read a little bit out of turn with uh, Afrahat here, the comparison with Jesus, you can see a subtle nod to that. The third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. The third day our Lord is risen. Hezekiah receives 15 years. Jesus receives everlasting life. And then you have this promise of further deliverance for the whole of the remainder of his life. God will keep Assyria at bay and keep Hezekiah in peace. So this is a blessed, a blessed 15 years. Look how specific our days are in the hands of the Lord. You know, again, I kind of preach, I try to preach about this once in a while, that despite what we think, that if you just eat enough organic chicken and enough leafy greens, you're going to gain for yourself extra days. It's, that's not really a good way to look at it. It's not really a faithful way to look at it. Our days are in the hands of the Lord. He knows our beginning and our end. And that's quite set, unless he alters it. Um, really, rather, what we're doing is say, for what the Lord has given me, I want to be healthy. That's about the amount of, of sweat we have. That's why you eat your organic chicken and leafy greens and, you know, eschew things like too much coffee or too much beer, as we were talking about them, uh, so that your quality of life that God gives you will be higher and your ability to serve faithfully in your vocations will be better. Those are the real reasons to pursue health, not to lengthen our days. I'm going to do this so I have longer life. Who are you to think you have longer life or you're in any control of that whatsoever? There's a transla translational issue, but um, but the teaching of Jesus doesn't really matter. You can't, through worry, add one inch to your height. You can't, through worry, add one day to your life. So humble yourself and realize these things aren't within your power. They're within his. And actually, there's great peace within that, isn't there? Because the flip side of that is, this is precisely the peace we draw upon in the middle of a pandemic. And it's the great irony to me. The world thinks it's digging all of these pastors. Did you see, I can't remember his name right now off the top of my head. I wasn't planning on talking about this. But did you see the, um, there's a, a conservative Roman Catholic um, theologian, if anybody recalls his name. But, but he had, you know, he had, of course, said some words about the pandemic. And now he is, uh, now he's caught it and he's in the hospital. And the media is rejoicing. You've seen these headlines in these articles about anybody who says anything about the pandemic maybe not being like 100% deadly or something. And as soon as they get it, the media just gloats and the wicked rejoice that particularly here's this churchman. He was not afraid of the pandemic. Ha! Now he's dying of it. You know, I, it's just, it's so satanic. It's so obviously satanic. But the last laugh is, I mean, let's say that uh, that priest does die. The last laugh is with him. 
The last laugh is with all of us, precisely because we know our days are in the hands of the Lord. And we know that, hey, if, if I was destined before the foundation of the world to get taken out by the pandemic, there's nothing I'm going to do to prevent it. Not, it doesn't matter how much I mask or inoculate myself. Um, I'm going to die of the pandemic. These things are out of my hands. Does that mean I, I go into harm's way or I'm foolhardy? No, not necessarily. It doesn't mean that. But it means that I can live without fear. It means that my days are completely in the hands of the Lord. So I'm, I'm free from those, those fears. And I'm going to look at the pandemic, even a, even a much more severe pandemic. I mean, what if the pandemic had something like a 20% mortality rate? You know, gosh, we'd all, be, we'd all be huddled in our homes and digging underground, wouldn't we? <laughs> Amazon would be dropping off drone packages. Have to. But anyway, I mean, what would you do? What would you do? And the answer for a Christian is, I wouldn't change much of anything. Because my, my, hands, my, my days are in the hands of the Lord. My time is in his hands. I'm not going to add or take away one minute. I'm going to live my life humbly and trusting myself to the Lord. And in matters of life and death, I'm going to t- turn myself over to him. So we're going to reflect on this even more as, as, this, uh, as this episode progresses and as we come to the end of, end of Hezekiah's life and on into, uh, in fact, at Josiah, the next good king. We're going to reflect on some of these similar themes, so I won't exhaust us uh, covering them now. But there are things, there are things worse than death. And one of the things that's worse than death is being so petrified of death that you're dead already. <laughs> yeah, please. Uh, in the context of uh, this pandemic and us uh, understanding our time for death, uh, we just read that uh, Hezekiah used the tools and mechanisms of his time, the cake of figs. Yeah. Isn't the vaccine our cake of figs? And shouldn't we re reasonably use that as our... That's a great question, Barry. I'm glad you brought that up. Because that's kind of the other side of my sermon and the other side of my coin. I mean, what I, what I see overwhelmingly in our country is kind of an inordinate amount of fear and kind of a gloating and that kind of thing. But you're right. The other side of the coin needs to be addressed, certainly. And this is where I think Christians are, should be absolutely free to take the vaccine if they want, absolutely free to mask if they want. And um, we want to, uh, just, as, just as, for example, Hezekiah, even though the Lord has promised, there's no faithlessness in his using the cake of figs. There's no faithlessness in using a mask or taking a vaccine or whatever else the case may be. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and that's, really, that's really probably then the holistic thing is a humility to entrust ourselves to the Lord and then exercise our Christian freedom in the way that we think is best without binding the consciences of others, without condemning others. I think that that's the key. So whether it's the media gloating or whether it's a, another Christian you know, mocking another Christian for wearing a mask or something, like those are the behaviors that are egregious. Those are the things we want to be rid of. Um, we want to entrust ourselves to the Lord, humbly love one another, um, and, then, and then use those things that we think benefit us. Yeah. Yeah, we're seeing the overreach of government into our lives, trying to dictate every, every last little aspect. And then all that does is encourages the people to 
peer into each other's lives and judge every little aspect. It's very, it very much reminds me of where St. Paul is dealing with in Corinthians. The Christians are, remember this? Um, you've got Jew and Gentiles, so you get these different dynamics, but they're judging each other over the dietary stuff. Oh, you're a vegetarian. You can't be a true Christian. Oh, you're a meat eater. You can't be a true Christian. This kind of thing. And I, I see a parallel where it's like, oh, you're vaccinated. You can't be a true Christian. You're unvaccinated. You can't be a true Christian. It's like, all right, we've drawn the lines way in the wrong place here, haven't we? Um, the whole point is that we not judge each other in matters of food and drink, that we not judge each other in matters of wearing a mask or not getting a shot or not. Um, our unity is much deeper than that. Our lives together are hidden in Christ. And so Paul is appealing for that greater unity, and, and I would too. So thank you, Barry, for the, uh, the other side there. Very valuable and important. Um, my, my question is, when uh, he's going out and uh, he gets the Lord talks to um, him through the prophet. Mm -hmm. Is that the same way, you know, and David and others, but it's the same way when you give absolution, you're doing the same thing. You're, you're proclaiming God's word because Hezekiah doesn't receive it. The prophet does. Is that the same? It's, there's a parallel, isn't there? Yeah. That God doesn't just speak immediately uh, to Hezekiah, which clearly he could do, but speaks immediately through the prophet, through Isaiah, and delivers his message. And that pleases God. And there's a parallel to that, that God doesn't just speak absolution magically into our ears or into our hearts, but rather he sends a pastor, uh, called an ordained servant of the word, to announce the absolution and announce that healing. Mm -hmm. Great point. Great point. Yeah, there are like I said, there are many, many details, and I'm glad you drew that one out. That was one I was I had neglected to to bring out of this text, and it's quite valid. Yes, please. Uh, again, going back to uh, our understanding of God as knowing all things but changing His mind. Yes. It jumped into my mind that it's true with the gospel and the law. We are condemned, but we are forgiven. God has changed his mind in that way. And then I go back to Genesis, and you mentioned this in the uh, Bible study this morning, uh, the, God's reaction to uh, Adam and Eve's sin was to promise a Savior. So that, And I love that word dynamic that you use. There's that, that dynamic that we don't really comprehend. Yeah, thank you for those reflections. Thank you for those reflections. Yeah, it's, you know, God wants to interact with us in, a, in an earthly, co comprehensible way. It's enough for us to know he's transcendent and outside of time and space and in control of all things. Beyond that, we can't peer too deeply. If we do, we'll end up in foolishness or madness, one of the same, because we're simply not capable of comprehending God in nude eternity. You know, this is one of the problems when people say, when I die, I'm going to go to eternity. No, you're not. If you were in eternity, you'd be God. You'd know all things and see all things. That's what it means to be eternal. You're going to go to heaven, in which there very much is a progression of time. Uh, if you need a proof text, the martyrs under the throne are saying, How long, oh Lord, how long? So time, ha heaven has time. And of course, that time is tied to the earth's time. And all of those times are leading to what we call the end of time, which is the return of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth, in which will be established a new time, a new timeline. Um, to be outside of time is to be God. Uh, you can't, 
you can't, if you're outside of time, then you comprehend all things and you experience eternity, timelessness. Only God can do that. So uh, just a way of cleaning up our, our language and a way of cleaning up our, our mental framework um, so that we, uh, we can see that what the scriptures say more accurately and, and understand that we're not blasting off into eternity, which eternity to us means stasis. This is, I think this is where we get our idea that heaven is this static, boring place. If you're blasted to eternity, there's no time. It's static. It's, sta- it's still. It's boring. Um, it's not actually, in fact, true. It's just on many points, but it's especially the point that we can't know eternity. We will always know time. That's what it means to be a creature. Yeah, play, oh, one more question, please. I hope I don't sound completely weird. But um, God created light. And I remember uh, seeing something on this years ago when I was a teenager. The creation of light is a creation of time. And then I'm thinking of, because I've always pondered, why is, not always pondered, but I've thought, why does the scripture say, in him was life, and his life was the light of the world? And I, there seems to be a crossover there from eternity into time in our situation. It's very interesting. Of course, physics are a, are a deep and profound mystery. And, they, and what that shows to us is that all of creation itself is a deep and profound mystery. Because you can keep going and going. And as soon as you think you've got something right, you don't. Um, there's a book by Bill Bryson, I forget what it's called, um, something like The History of Everything. <laughs> and it's, it's of extreme value because it goes through all the hard sciences and shows how often and how frequently the hard sciences have completely and utterly changed their minds on everything. So I'm not one of those, with that in mind, I'm not one of those to say, hey, this is what we know about the physics of light. Let's apply that to some profound theological principle or not, right? But rather to see all of creation as a mystery, an unfolding revelation, something that ultimately we cannot comprehend, but that we stand in awe of, because it just keeps going. And the scriptures are way ahead of us. Um, it's, not, it's not infrequent that science will finally get caught up to, to theology. The old adage is that the scientists climb all the way up to the peak. You know, and it's like it's like one example of this in our own times is like scientists finally come to the conclusion that um, that when you get to the molecular level of everything, it's information. Maybe you've heard this theory. So that's like like science develops and develops and develops into everything is finally information on just this sort of like um, astronomically small level. And it's like, so they climb the, and ascend this great hill only to find the theologians there being like, in the beginning was the word. <laughs> and God said, let there be, right? And so it's like, well, duh, it's information. We've always known it's information. Creation is created through the word. The word is information. And, and information is distinction. And so on and so forth. And so finally the scientists and philosophers catch up with what our little children have been repeating in Sunday school for millennia. You know, that, but that's the joy and the delight of, I think, being a human being. It's the joy and the lo- delight of creation. And I expect fully that the new creation, the new, uh, the new heavens and the new earth are going to be the same thing. It's just we're going to have unadulterated reason and experience and enjoyment of who we are. And we're going to have, if you want to take the three tiers of spirit, uh, psychology, body, and then you want to take all the majesty of creation from its utmost uh, greatness um, down to its smallest parts. And then every, every single distinction in between that you can make from simplicity to complexity and so on and so forth. 
we're going to spend eternity unfolding the mystery of God's new creation. Uh, therein comprehending the old creation all the more fully and the new creation as well so that there's continuity and freshness and newness. But this is the joy of what it means to be a creature. That all of creation surrounds you in the wisdom and majesty and awe of God. All of creation is contemplative and majestic and mysterious um, and a continued unfolding. These are the things we have to look forward to. Um, and this is the, Paul hints at this in Ephesians, of course, that um, eternity is in terms of like, not nude eternity, but eternity in terms of an, an endless timeline in which we will participate is specifically for the unfolding of the graciousness of God and for the continued outpouring of God's gracious gifts to us. And so all we're doing is fleshing that out. Um, it's, it's profoundly joyful. So thank you, for those, uh, thank you for those reflections and opportunity to digress a little in a, in a fun and creative way. All right, well, we've got a few minutes left. Let's jump into Hezekiah uh, a little further along. Um, there's probably some other details we could draw out from this section, but for the sake of it, let's, let's move along. Verse 8, And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? Kind of another third day here. Um, interesting, he asked for a sign and is not rebuked for that. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord, and he brought... Oh, so I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps, or go back ten steps? All right, well, what are the steps? Is this a kind of like sundial, maybe? Or is this just steps in his room or something like that, and the shadow of the sun passes it? Okay, you can look at the study notes and do whatever digging you want to do. But the bottom line is, um, if the shadow, you know, do you want the shadow to go forward 10 steps or back 10 steps? Either one's going to be a miraculous thing of God, okay? Even if it went 10 steps instantaneously, like that's a miracle of God. That doesn't happen on the sundial, you know. So, um, Picking back up, verse 10, And Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. He's probably not thinking of it if it did it instantaneously. That's, not, that's probably what God had in mind. Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. Okay, well, fair enough. That's uh, indisputably difficult and challenging. How on earth are you going to do that? And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord, and he brought the shadow back ten steps by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. All right, um, again, you can dig around in the steps and what exactly is meant there in the study notes if you like. Interesting point on the study note in verse 11. Um, back 10 steps, normal recording of the sun's progress, the steps of Ahaz was reversed, and then apparently the phenomenon was observed only locally. 2 Chronicles 32, 31. So we don't have a sun standing still event. Although, that's interesting too, because was that local to the battlefield or was that, uh, or was that a, a sort of cosmic experience? I don't know. Um, same here. Uh, it's, this it seems to be a local experience. It's not like everywhere in the world records this. Um, and you can go, if you want to dig into this question, Go back to uh, 2 Chronicles 32-31. Check out the study note there after you read it, and uh, you'll get some more commentary on this. 
At any rate, this sign is accomplished, and that's the proof then that Hezekiah will be healed. You've got this interesting dynamic, too, where Ahaz, I mean, again, these, Second Kings is so deceptively simple. You can follow any number of rabbit trails as far down as you want and discover wonderful and majestic things. It's just that's not really the nature of this class. But I will hint to another rabbit trail you can follow, and that is um, that Ahaz himself, uh, you remember this business where the Lord told Ahaz to ask for a sign and Ahaz feigned uh, piety. Oh, no, no. Far be it from me to ask for a sign. And the Lord calls him out on this feigned piety and then gives him a sign nonetheless. And so interesting that we have mention of Ahaz's steps. Um, you can see that in the study note. And then um, also in verse 11, and this, and this business of the sign and what can you derive there from God's use of sign and what might be the pious use of a sign and the impious use of a sign. You can do a whole, like I said, you can do a whole digression there. Okay, uh, verse 12. At that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon. Okay, well here we have Babylon entering the picture, not Assyria. That's who we've been dealing with. That's who swallowed up the north. That's who looked like they were going to swallow up uh, Judah and there was going to be no hope. God prevented this. And now we're introduced to Babylon, which of course is a big deal because of uh, Babylon is going to end up overtaking the Assyrian Empire and then swallowing up Judah for a time. Judah gets spit back out just about like Jonah. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with, uh, envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. Uh-oh, beware of Babylonians bearing gifts. <laughs> For he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them. Uh-oh. And he showed them all his treasure house. What was that show called? Cribs, cribs, where the rich people would bring in the, the cameras and they'd show them everything they have. Could you imagine like if you were criminally oriented? And you're like, oh, there's the layout, there's the lack of security systems, there's where the vaults are, there's the $20,000 collection of sneakers. Yeah, I've often... <laughs> So here we have Cribs, Old Testament version. Hezekiah's like, oh, a bunch of pagans sending me gifts. How nice. Come into my crib. All right. <laughs> this is so stupid. And Isaiah's going to call him out on it. It's great. It's awesome. So Hezekiah welcomed them, showed them all his treasure house. Here's, where it all, here's all my stereo equipment. The silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. What's he doing? Look how wealthy and how powerful I am. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Let's go get in the bus and check out this. Here's my, here's my uh, private collection of airplanes. Everything was shown. And look at, look at the king of Babylon. All he did has to do was send like a little get well note and a little gift. And Hezekiah is completely duped. Why did, why did the king of Babylon do this? Precisely because he wanted this information. 
Verse 14, Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What are you doing? <laughs> he said, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And <laughs> Can you imagine? Ah, talk about egg on your face. Ah. And Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. You idiot. Well, I added that part, but that's... That is clearly the sentiment. All right, so here we see then a great failure on the part of Hezekiah. Great piety, pleading to the Lord for his life, living an exemplary life, failing in this great grievous way, taking stock in himself, pride, arrogance, my own strength, my own power. Um, and, and so here we see a great, you know, the a great moral failure on the part of Hezekiah. Let's pick up there with next week, given that we're out of time. We'll finish chapter 20 and uh, go into chapter 21. The Lord be with you.